Hey, good morning, everybody. Today, we are starting a new month, November, and we're starting a new series. And for many folks in our church, in our church family, we're going to be starting, well, for a month, a new way of doing church, which I guess in some ways is actually not so new a way of doing church. It's actually an ancient way of doing church. Now, in December, we're going to be regathering here in the sanctuary to kick off our Christmas series, and we're already beginning to plan our Christmas Eve services. We're super excited about that. But for this new month of November, and for this new series that we're going to start today, we're going to be virtual in the month of November. And here's what's going to happen. For a lot of our small groups, they're going to begin practicing the ancient art of house church. For the next four weeks, a ton of folks in our church will meet in their homes together. They'll gather to watch and discuss these services. And, and afterwards, they have real heart-to-heart discussions on, on what these topics, what these teachings mean for their lives, their families, and their faith. In some ways, it's church the way it was meant to be, and it's going to be happening all over Morris County this November. I'm excited that you're a part of it. Now, November brings with it my favorite holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. And while I guess, just like everything else in 2020, this Thanksgiving will unfortunately look different than other Thanksgivings, I know that it's still going to bring with it one of my favorite things about the holidays, which is always the return of one of my kids from college. This time it's going to be my baby, my youngest daughter, Caroline, who's going to come home from school in Indiana. Carrie hasn't been home since the first week of August, and to say that I'm excited to have her back would be literally a gross understatement. The only person that's likely to be happier than me that Caroline's home is going to be, at least for a day or two, at least for a day or two, Caroline. Carrie's our fourth, so I kind of know the drill by now. After a couple of days, I know what's going to happen. She's going to get bored. She's going to tell me there's nothing to do in this town. How could I possibly like living here? It's so boring. And then she's going to say, well, why do I need to have a curfew? It doesn't make any sense. When I'm at school, I can do whatever it is I want. I can come home whenever I want. You don't even know about it. But guys, before all that starts, here's what I know. For the first 48 hours or so. Here's what I know Carrie's going to do. For the first time in four months, Caroline is going to walk in that door and she's going to exhale. <sighs> she's going to breathe. She's going she's to decompress. She's going to relax. You know why? Because she's home. Maybe you remember what it was like at college. You know, you always have to be on. You know what I mean by that? You can never, in a sense, let your guard down. You have to, all the time, you have to, to look good, be good, feel good, be up, be, be ready. I mean, you have to watch what you say. You have to watch what you wear. You have to watch whose stuff it is. You're never home. Not even, not even in your room, because you have a roommate. I mean, heck, you even have to worry in your room if you're going to fall asleep and have an ugly face or snore or pass gas, because you have a roommate, and today your roommate has a phone. 
When I was at school, I had a co-ed dorm. The bathrooms were communal. They were at the end of the hall. So you even had to dress up and look good just to go to the stupid bathroom. It never ended. You could never just relax and, and not worry about impressing anyone or not worry about what somebody might think about you. You could never just for a moment not care. You could never just let go. You could never just relax and be you. That's why at some level, every college kid, I'll check that. I'm going to go further. Every human being, to one extent or another, longs to be home. You know why? Because at home, I can relax. Because at home, I don't need to impress anybody. At home, I don't need to worry about what anybody else thinks of me. At home, I can just be me. Because at home, I'm known. Welcome to not just our new series called Known, but to the one great shared desire of both God and man. And that desire is the desperate desire to be known. Now, over the next four weeks, from, well, from your homes, we're going to be looking together at the great psalm of Israel's great king, Psalm 139, where David revels in both knowing his God and in knowing that his God knows him. In fact, at one point, you'll see this in a minute, in coming to know God and fully comprehending his knownness by God, David concludes that, quote, such knowledge, well, it's too wonderful for me. And guys, that's my prayer for us and for you. Well, and for your homes, that in four weeks, we could all proclaim that same thing. So, if you are home, and you want to get your Bibles out or maybe bring your Bibles with you to your group, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be jumping into the book of Psalms. Psalms is one of the easier books to find in your Bible because if you just kind of go to the center of your Bible and open it, you're literally likely to open it to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is actually not a book. It's a, it's a compilation uh, of writings, of ancient Hebrew poems and songs and prayers. And, and these things come from all different periods of time in Israel's history. It's actually pretty interesting. The book of Psalms spans nearly a thousand years of, of Israel's story. The first Psalm, for example, was believed to have been written by Moses. Most scholars believe it was Psalm 90. And that he wrote it while Israel was still in Egyptian captivity, about 1450 B.C., the latest Psalms, well, they were written again about a thousand years later, sometime around 500 B.C. And of the 150 Psalms, just about half of them were believed to have been written by King David. I got to tell you, though, there are some super fun facts about the book of Psalms. First, it's the third largest book in your Bible, but it isn't that it just seems like it's in the middle of your Bible. The centrality of the book of Psalms in the Scripture is amazing because it really is like right in the middle. In fact, check this out. The middle chapter of your entire Bible is Psalm 118. Interestingly enough, the longest chapter of your Bible 
is on one side of it is Psalm 119, and the shortest chapter in your Bible, well, that's on the other side, Psalm 117. It doesn't end there, though. There are in your Bible, prior to Psalm 118, which is the middle chapter, right? There are 590 chapters before it. And now guess how many chapters there are after Psalm 118. That's right, 594 chapters. I'll give you one more for fun. You add those two together, 594 chapters before chapter 118, 594 chapters after Psalm 118, and you get 1,188 chapters combined on either side, 1188. And believe it or not, what is the verse at the very center of your Bible? Psalm 118, verse 8, 1188. And what does is, what is Psalm 118, verse 8 say? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Friends, I want you to understand as we get going this morning, this is truly a God who wants to be known. And so let's jump in to Psalm 139. Today we're just going to look at the beginning, verses 1 through 6. Here's what David wrote. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and, and you lay your hand upon me. And in wonderment, he concludes, such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too lofty for me to attain. And in the midst of resting and rejoicing in his knownness, I want you to understand that David imparts to us one of the key things that God wants, that God desires for us to know about him because he's a God that wants to be known. It's what theologians call one of his incommunicable attributes. In other words, it's an attribute of God that he has that he has not given us. And that's this. God is omniscient. What does that mean? Well, at least theologically, theologically, what does that mean? Here's how A.W. Tozer described it. I really like this. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. He knows all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures. Every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but he knows all things equally well. God never discovers anything. He's never surprised. He's, he's never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor except when he's drawing men out for their own good, 
does he seek information or ask questions? I heard it put this way this week. Has it occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? That is, that he never just remembers something or has never had a thought just pop into his mind, never has an old thought slipped from his memory, or he's never had to rack his brain to figure out what to do. God never wonders about anything. He's never surprised. He, he instantly and eternally knows every fact about, well, about everything, everywhere, forever, and he knows it fully, perfectly, completely, and, and unerringly. Think about this one. God has never learned anything. God cannot learn anything because if He could, He wouldn't be infinite or perfect. He wouldn't be God. God is omniscient. And when David comes for a moment to an understanding, a realization of this, and come on now, I mean, let's just be honest about how hard this is to really understand. But when David came to an understanding about this, he rejoiced. He, he celebrates, which is, I mean, can we be honest? That's actually pretty shocking because the canon of human history seems to record a very different natural reaction to God's om omniscience. The reality is once we come to understand that he knows, there's very little hallelujahing and a whole lot of hiding for most of us, if we're honest, the thought of God's omniscience, it evokes a whole lot more dread than it does delight. Uh, our confession might not be that such knowledge is too wonderful for, us, wonderful for us, but that it's often, I mean, the truth is it's too worrisome for us. You know why? Because it means, it means, it means that he knows. He knows it all. You mean that, that time in college when, yep. You mean to tell me he was watching me when I wrote that, uh-huh. That, that conference that one time in, in Toledo. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, that. that. That test that I took for my license where I had the, Yep, all of it, saw all of it, knows all of it. In fact, he, he knew it all. He, he knew you would do it before you even did it. I mean, after all, God, you understand, God stands outside of time, right? God's not just up in heaven wondering how things are going to play out because for God, all things are in his glorious now, it's as C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, almost certainly God's not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. He would go on to say, if you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. And so I have to tell you, that's right. He knows all about last week, last month, last year. Not just that, he, he knows about next week and next month and next year. He knows, as David discovered, not just where you sit and rise, but he knows. He knows where you've laid down. He knows where you went in, when you walked out, and how you took off. 
In fact, it's, it's even more encompassing than that. I mean, as David wrote, he even knows your thoughts before you even think them yourself. He knows what you've wished for. The lusts, the desires, the ill will, the harm, the curses, the misfortune. Again, he knows it all. And, and so here's the question. <laughs> How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? What's that make you want to do? Well, for as long as time itself, for most of man's history, this truth, when understood even a little bit, has been greeted with fear and has resulted in running. Adam and Eve, who God once walked with in their sinless perfection in the cool of the garden, now, as many of you know, post their decision to be, God's, to be God for themselves, post deciding that the temptation of determining right and wrong for themselves by eating from the tree that God had forbidden, post the fall, post the sin, what happens? Well, here's how Moses recorded it in Genesis chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And by the way, hint, hint, we're about to discover something. See, God's omniscient, he already knows where they are. Well, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. I was afraid his sin caused him some shame and some fear, and so he hid. It's the common nature of man. I mean, heck, David, David himself touches on this nature when he continues in the Psalms. He goes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And church, here's the answer to that question. Nowhere. But that, that doesn't mean we won't try, though, does it? And we, we try all kinds of ways to, to cover our tracks. Heck, heck, as some of you know, David would, would come to try and do the same thing a short time later after he committed adultery with another man's wife. He, he would try to cover up what he did. And, and, and we do a lot of that, too. We try to cover our tracks up with all kinds of things. A lot of times it's, it's with religion, good works, good stuff, good things. We, not unlike a college freshman to the other kids in the dorms, we, we try to, to look a certain way, we try to act a certain way or appear a certain way so that others, or in our case with God, that God would see us a certain way. We, we hide from him, not in the bushes and the underbrush. Uh, we're pretty smart, we know that he could see us there. But we try to hide in our works and in our walk. But that is not what God is looking for from you. That is, in fact, not how God wants you to know him. You see, here's what I want you to see. Listen to me now. God knew what Adam and Eve had done. Heck, 
God knew they were going to do it before they did it. I mean, it's not unlike a parent knows what his child's going to pick off the kid's menu before the waitress even comes. God knew what they did. God knew everything about them. God knew that their hearts had chosen rebellion and revolution. God understood fully the pain and the loss and the utter devastation that their choice was going to have on His creation for all of time. God knew that every war, every murder, every famine, every death, every heartbreak, it all began with them. It was their fault. They started it. They chose it. They were solely responsible for it. And you know what God did with his full knowledge of them and what they had done and all of the ramifications for it? God came looking for them. You see, understand, the story of the Bible isn't primarily about the desire of people to be with God. It's the desire of God to be with people. The central promise in the Bible is not, I will forgive you, although of course that promise is in there. It's not the promise of life after death, although we are all are offered that as well. Guys, the most frequent promise in the Bible is, I will be with you. Guys, God knows it all. And you know what? God still wants Well, God still wants you. He wants to be with you personally, intimately, knowingly. You see, the the attribute of God's omniscience is not so much to be revered as it is to be reveled in. Of course, it should be awed over, but more importantly, it should be rested in. This is why David says it's, it's almost too wonderful to fathom. He knows me. He really knows me. And he still loves me. The omniscience of God, it should not drive us to strive harder for his love and acceptance because he knows, but to feel Just like I know Caroline's going to in a few weeks. I'm home. They know me here. And they still love me. They'll always love me here. I don't have to fake it anymore. I, I can just rest. All of this brings some real context to Jesus' invitation Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let me make this as plain as I can for you. You are fully and completely known. Now here comes the good news. You are also fully, holy, and completely loved. This, my friends, is the greatest cry of the human heart. I love Tim Keller's quote about this. Maybe some of you have seen it. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all of your strengths and flaws and still yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it's a consummate experience. To be loved but not known, 
Well, that's comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and then not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life could possibly throw at us. So in light of the wonder of God's omniscience, we're left with these two choices. You see, we can run or we can rest. What have you been doing? What characterizes your faith, your walk with God? I mean, in light of all of the, the knowingness of God, we can cover up or we can confess. We can fear or we can frolic. See, the, the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs is this ancient book of wisdom. It's actually right next to Psalms in your Bible. He put it this way, whoever conceals their sin doesn't prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them, he finds mercy. Guys, listen to me now. God wants to be with you personally, intimately. And if there's going to be intimacy between you and God, then intimacy demands a couple of things. And one of those things is transparency. You know what that means? It means there, there needs to be an honesty in the relationship that you have with God. And do you know why? Because He knows. He knows. He knows what you did. And He knows what you thought. And so you just kind of keep thinking those things, keeping them to yourself. Guys, it's not hurting God. He knows. Keeping them to yourself is it's hurting you. It's cutting off intimacy and relationship with your Father in heaven. And so this means sometimes, I don't know, maybe sometimes you just got to drop, you know, the canned prayers and, and approach God in honestly. If you're mad at Him, well, yell at Him. God's a big boy. He can take it. If you've sinned, if you messed up, tell Him. I mean, make your prayers just raw and real. If you've got a lust issue, a porn issue, an anger issue, tell them. I, I, I don't know why I would have to explain it again, but I, I think we all need to know. He knows. God is not going to go, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Jeez, are you serious? There's something powerful in relationships that confession brings about. Think about it. I mean, my, my wife. My wife might find out about some of my screw-ups. She, she might read a text or an email on my phone. Maybe she could, she could check the credit card statement. She might find out about things that I did that were just wrong. But guys, it's not her knowledge of my shortcomings or my sin that brings any intimacy to the relationship. Her knowing about it, you know what that fixes? Nothing. But it's me in coming to her with it, confessing it, asking forgiveness for it. Well, that changes everything. It restores intimacy in the relationship between us and it releases the hold that sin has gotten in my heart. 
living in the light and knowledge of God's omniscience not only means something about your past, but it has huge ramifications for today too. Because God doesn't just know about yesterday's deeds, God is aware of today's needs. There is not one thing you need or you care about that God is not somehow, I don't know, just blissfully unaware of. He has perfect knowledge of what you need for any given day and every, every given moment. Think about this for a moment. God has perfect knowledge. This is amazing. Think about this. God has perfect knowledge of what tomorrow is going to bring. And since he does, he's able to provide for us today, not just what we need for today, but what he knows that we'll need for tomorrow. He knows exactly what we need, both in the realm of physical things like food, shelter, clothing, money, but also in the realm of our spiritual and emotional and mental needs. It's amazing. Understand the omniscience of God. It brings new meaning to what Jesus said regarding our todays. It was for this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, nor for your body as to what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not worth much more than they? Uh, who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? I mean, observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I'm telling you, they're not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Do not worry then, say, saying, what am I going to eat or what am I going to drink or what am I going to wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all those things, people that don't believe. But your heavenly Father, he knows that you need all these things. I'll give you even one more. It's not just yesterday. It's not just today. You know what God's omniscience means about tomorrow? Well, Matthew recorded Jesus putting it this way. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God's omniscience means this. God, the very God who loves you so much that the very hairs on your head are numbered. God, the very God who sent his son to earth, whom the prophets said would be called Emmanuel. And why Emmanuel? Because Emmanuel literally means God is with us. This same God who allowed his son to suffer and die to pay the price for our sins and restore us into right, intimate relationship with him, that same omniscient God is in complete, full, utter, and whole control over every one of your tomorrows. He controls them. He runs them. He has domain and dominion over them. And guys, if that's true, if that's true, and it is, maybe, just maybe, you could let the anxiety drop a little bit and the fear subside a bit and the worries lessen a little. 
The God that's got your past and your present in his hands, he also holds your future. And when you look back with wonder over where he's brought you, when you see what he's done in the rearview mirror and how he's provided for you, can you begin to look forward maybe for once without all the worry and anxiety, but could you look forward for once with eager expectation over where he's about to lead you? Now listen, it does not mean it's always going to be where you want to go. But it does mean that no matter where you go, there he is right with you, which is all he's ever wanted to be. Guys, I want you to know what David knew, that the God of the universe is indeed omniscient. He knows everything about everything. More importantly than that, though, for you is this. He knows everything about you. And so now I have two, two choices. You can respond like so many have over the millennia with fear and dread, with hiding and running. There's no doubt it's scary. You feel at first blush when you hear this a little bit like Adam said earlier, naked. I'm embarrassed by my worst because, well, like you, I want to be known for my best. But even in your worst, God gave his best for you. Though his eye is on us, you remain the apple of his eye. He knows us to our depths, but he has loved us to his heights, and so this week. If you've chosen to put your faith in the life, death, resurrection, and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, if you have confessed your sins, not because God wasn't aware of them and you're outing yourself, but because you wanted to have your relationship restored to intimacy with a God that wants to be known, well then this week, God wants you to live like a college kid walking in from your first semester. You know why? Because he knows you. He knows everything about you. Everything. And he still loves you. He is as excited to have you with him and to have you know him as I'm going to be when Caroline walks in that door. And as you finally escape... And exhale from a world full of performance-driven love and acceptance this morning, I want you to know, with full knowledge of your yesterdays, with full knowledge of your tomorrows, God says to you as he does to me, come now and rest. Welcome home. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today, and we hope you'll stay connected to Mendham Hills throughout the week by liking and following our Facebook and Instagram pages. Parents, I'll meet your kids on the MHCC Kids Facebook page in just a minute. We'll see you online next Sunday.